we can also play a role in the international negotiations alongside the government of Poland and alongside other governments on the planet. Prince Albert was extremely, extremely involved in defining SDG 14, so the Sustainable Development Goal entirely dedicated to the ocean. Welcome to the special English edition of Der Große Neustadt, a German podcast series by Sibylla Bach, in which she talks to pioneering leaders who, inspired by the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative, create revolutionary projects that actually do make our world smarter, greener and fairer. Today I have the privilege of welcoming Olivier Venden, Vice President and CEO of the Prince Albert II of Monaco Foundation. Monaco, the most densely populated sovereign state in the world, smaller than New York Central Park, has emerged as a powerful advocate for ocean and marine life conservation. Prince Albert, as head of state and president of the foundation, played a significant role in shaping SDG 14, the United Nations Sustainability Development Goal, entirely dedicated to the ocean. He also spearheaded a campaign to ban global fishing over the endangered Atlantic bluefin tuna. And when the world turned a blind eye, he went local. The foundation's commitment to environmental stewardship is showcased through 750 projects focusing on biodiversity, climate, the ocean, and water resources. In my conversation with Olivier Venden, we explore the remarkable but underreported impact of Monaco's what he calls collaborative activism and delve into the celebration of its first Green Shift Festival. Olivier, thanks for joining us. It's day two of the festival. How is it going? Well, thank you very much indeed for the invitation and thank you for asking. The festival is on the second day. I must say it's a premiere. It's the first edition, but great turnout, great success so far. Um, probably because we managed to bring together people that usually don't talk to each other. You know, this world is working a bit too often in silos and and also when addressing the um, issues of climate change and biodiversity loss or environmental challenges or threats, we tend to be very gloomy and all about the figures, the data, uh, the wall that we might face if we don't act. And it's pretty rare that we have an open conversations bringing together scientists, writers, um, talents, singers, songwriters, philosophers all together to bring optimism and a message of hope, not um, a naive one, but just to dream together of the future we want. So that's probably the key of success of that first Green Shift Festival based here in Monaco. Um, the idea for the Green Shift Festival was born how? Well, the genesis of the foundation is back to 2006. So we have already 17 years of uh, track record. But that being said, uh, we have to face one big thing. Science is key to understand how the world works, where we are heading to if we don't yeah. act. That's clear. But the message has always been very gloomy. It's been decades that we were hearing, well, if we don't act now, um, the world would not be sustainable for our children and grandchildren. The problem is this message didn't work. 
We didn't change. We didn't steer the wheel. Hmm. We were thinking, well, that's not great. What can we do? What is missing? Why governments, companies, um, customers, even our own households and individual level, why can't we make this change happen? We are all rational individuals, so we we can understand the problem. If we want to find this, the information, we can find it. It's everywhere. The IPCC reports, um, yeah. uh, very regularly, give all give you a very clear overview of the challenges, the problems, but also the solutions. There's a roadmap of solutions to be implemented to solve the problem. Yet it didn't work. So what are we missing? And that's how the idea of the festival is born. Because through conversations, and I would tell you with philosophers and activists, French activists back um, at the end of last year, we were thinking, well, maybe, and it's a very strong maybe, maybe is to be able to dream of the world we want. And that really resonated. And I remember my time, you know, graduating from uni. Hmm. I dreaming, and I think I'm not the only one. I was dreaming of my professional life. I was dreaming of my family life, um, how I wanted to achieve that goal. And then, and then you find your own way to achieve your target. When it comes to environment and the tra ecological transition, so clean mobility, uh, uh, stopping the uh, green gas, greenhouse gas emissions, um, killing the plastic pollution, we always see, you know, the tragic consequences and the data and the pollution level increasing and the killing of the But we never talk about the success. Mm -hmm. And I think it means to dream about the success. We need to dream of the world we want before being able to find the right solutions and take the right action. So it's probably not the only lack but it's clearly something linked to the emotions and maybe stopping for a while about being in our heads, um, changing the software and thinking more with the heart than with the brain at some point. We need to feel more. We need to be rooted again. And that's probably what we have been losing over the past two, three decades with of course, the increase of technology and the streams and access to information, it feels that, and, and again, from the conversation with the scientists and psychologists as well, it seems to be a fact, a, a very serious fact that we, um, we are embarked into a perpetual movement of information mm -hmm. that prevents us from feeling. Yeah. We don't really feeling anymore as human beings. Um, we always need to be occupied, you know, having a screen or reading something, um, but just wandering around, thinking, reflecting. This is this is no longer the case on a general average basis. And that's the purpose of the festival, is to think with the heart, less with the head. Mm, I absolutely agree with you. We need to think more with a heart and less with a brain. And that we are also in desperate need of some positivity, good examples that show us the way through the transformation. And that was certainly my motivation when I set up this platform in 2020. And since then, there were many, many global leaders um, that I talked to 
who all say exactly the same. We need to have more positivity, encouraging examples. And perhaps we could talk about your approach, um, which is quite um, special. You said in an interview, we think, and I quote you, we think of ourselves and the global community as collaborative activists. Well, absolutely. Um, the thing is, and this interview was just made uh, after COVID uh, because we had time, like many of us uh, <laughs> around the globe, we had time to think. And that was great to start with because we need to benefit. Well, we thought that it would be very, very good to take advantage of this forced pause to redefine on a positive way what could be the world after COVID, the post-COVID world. We truly believed, and we launched a green shift campaign at that time on the web. It's still uh, visible on our website with many, many interviews of um, a very holistic cohort of uh, close friends of the foundation from Nico Rosberg to Paul Pullman to uh, uh, Tim Flannery from Australia, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, around Prince Albert. But it was their vision for the post-COVID world. And there was a lot of, of optimism at that time because, you know, um, marine life was back on the coast. Uh, there was no activity, so the air pollution completely dropped, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, of course, we were not naive, and we didn't call um, for a world without human activities. This is impossible. We 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 took advantage of the you know no uh, no uh, no flights in the air, but. That was not sustainable. We stopped the production. That's not sustainable. So it was, uh, it was impossible to to continue living like that. However, we were able to reflect on a future we wanted. Mm -hmm. What's your personal motivation to run the foundation? Um, I would say that first and foremost, as CEO, so I have a beautiful. A great, great team, fully dedicated. We were talking about, you know, the committed generation. I have every day the feeling that I'm working with this kind of generation. Um, we are doers. So us, the foundation, because it's unique, because uh, it's the only NGO in the world that is chaired by a running head of state, we have concrete examples on the ground in terms of conservation, saving species, implementing technology or innovative ways. But we also have um, an important role, a leading role, when it comes to mm, lobbying, um, raising awareness, launching campaigns to, to, to raise awareness amongst the heads of states, heads of government, um, economic leaders or other NGOs on very specific uh, issues, challenges being uh, yeah, challenges or opportunities, actually. So this is extremely reward rewarding in terms of impact. So my motivation is all about impact. And as I said earlier on, we can, even at our level, because we are, I would say, let, let's face it, we are a small foundation compared to other international organizations, but we can find our own way and we can have significant impact um, using traditional philanthropy, so we fund projects on the ground, 
defining political campaigns at the international level to try mm -hmm. to curb international regulation when needed, and it's very often needed, I, I have to say, and also to favor, to promote, to channel uh, the stakeholders into the raising opportunities, I would say, from technology, blue finance, blue economy, um, and technology. Mm -hmm. Because you 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 mentioned that before that um, you must be the only foundation in the world that has an acting head of state as president. Um, so how do we imagine your work process there? And um, for anybody who listens and doesn't know, it's uh, uh, Prince Albert II um, who is actually the president of your foundation. So how do we imagine? The work process are there more advantages than disadvantages to be honest with you there are only advantages <laughs> only advantages in the way that mm, and i will repeat myself but first and foremost we are a philanthropy working for the prince of monaco so with the meetings that his highness has with the trips that he has on the ground or meeting you know other heads of state or in the multilateral arena like the un he's got the opportunity to identify partners stakeholders challenges problems on the ground um he discusses a lot with local communities he's got a very uh strong focus on local communities and uh, the role that human beings can play in solving their own issues so that's Uh, a, a fantastic way to have a global view of the challenges and being able to support uh, with our own means, of course, which are important but not um, outstanding, I would say, uh, given the, imp uh, the level of impact. But we can benefit these communities with very concrete support mm. on the ground, on research grounds as well, to, to make a change at a local level. Then, then, We can also play a role in the international negotiations alongside the government of Monaco and alongside uh, the governments on the planet. Prince Albert was extremely, extremely involved in defining SDG 14. So the Sustainable Development Goal entirely dedicated to the ocean. Mm -hmm. That was uh, that obvious at the time of the definition of the Sustainable Development Goals. So he was not the only one, but he played a pivotal role in defining SDG 14. So having the ocean being yeah. part of the uh, discussions. Then he was one of the head of state to really make sure that the ocean was part of the uh, Paris Agreement as well. Remember, COP15, yeah, yeah. climate, yet the ocean were not that obviously included. Yeah. And yes, now they are in the preamble of this uh, uh, historical um, agreement. We played a key role in the high seas as well, defining the high seas treaty. Mm -hmm. um, Prince Albert was extremely pivotal in enabling the creation of the Ross Sea, which, as you probably know, is today the largest marine protected areas yeah. in entire. So that's to give you also a, um, an example of what we can do on top of traditional philanthropy, and I would say the level. Um, is probably the liberty that we have to test ideas like the Green Shift Festival 
but also to federate very broadly, um, breaking the silos of corporations and federating all these stakeholders around very specific matters. And I come back to this example of Monaco Ocean Week. The Monaco Ocean Week is one week of event in Monaco, so roughly 60 different events hosted with a 1,000 people. And in each event, you bring together scientists, CEOs, um, decision makers, so mayors, ministers, to discuss about the various, various uh, issues linked to the ocean conservation. And this is not the only place on the planet where we discuss in a holistic way, but it's a very active role that we play in bringing together these uh, different forces to bring the best solutions possible once again, to scale up and accelerate um, the implementation of the solutions that do exist, that do exist for the ocean, for the biodiversity and climate. But it's together, as you all know, that we can succeed. And it's good to say it, but it's even better to do it. Your, your ideas and, and your work certainly have a huge impact. Bringing all the relevant stakeholders of society to the table is, of course, key to any sustainable success. And your 750 projects and initiatives that the foundation has realized since 2006 are definitely proof that you do right. So, Olivier, but I have to ask you that. How come your work for the oceans and biodiversity is so underreported? Yeah, uh, that's a key question, but I would say it comes back to an answer I just made. We are doers. His Highness um, is in favor of impact. He's looking for doing things for his foundation to achieve its goals. We are not seeking uh, recognition. But I must say, in a certain way, and that's the dedication of uh, my team at the communication level, we are trying to spread the, the word about what we say. It's uh, it's hard, it's true, but the motivation is really what we achieve on the ground. Mm -hmm. So the facts, I share it with you, um, and we're working on it. I can guarantee you, and I'm sure beautiful podcast will probably help raise awareness um, of uh, the great achievements and successes that the, the Prince of Monaco has been uh, experiencing throughout his reign. Yeah, yeah. Um, Olivier, let's delve into... Um, a few projects and initiatives that are close to your heart. Um, can you choose two or three which you want to go into more detail? Well, thank you for asking. So there is one massive success linked to our traditional philanthropy approach is the um, bluefin tuna. So in the meds, we saved the species. That's thanks to the role that Prince Albert played and the fact that he's a head of state because the... Um, the bluefin tuna had only two years of uh, left of existence in the Med when in 2009 scientists came to to alarm his finest about the situation. So two years left of stock and then it was over. Game over for one species, one emblematic species. Yeah. Uh, so Prince Albert asked uh, at that time that the bluefin tuna was listed on the red list of the IUCN, which would have meant no fishing, no trading. Mm -hmm. That was a hard 
important to take. And we lost it. S uh, certain, well, one specific country, which I will not mention, but you will <laughs> very find it. So one country lobbied very strongly uh, to make sure that this didn't happen because, as you could guess, the price of a ton of bluefin tuna was extremely high. It's roughly the price of a Ferrari car, to give you an example. So the market is super, super important. Uh, so we lost the case yet. Being Prince Albert, the media attention was cut and the quotas had to be raised by the European Union. And um, we had to work a lot to raise awareness of the fishermen community. It was hard. It was very hard at the beginning because they didn't understand why we wanted to kill their source of in their main source of income. However, it was a long journey, so it took more than a year to be successful in making them understand that there was the very short term, but there was also the uh, long term vision, and they understood, and mm -hmm. they understood. And a very important uh, decision that was taken, not by law. But the restaurants themselves, they remove the species from the menu just because they're of this awareness. Thing. Yeah. And, uh, and that was brilliant. And to make a long story short, within five years, I mean, with the quotas being raised, more monitoring and more awareness with the communities, the species has been saved. We can start fishing it again now under very strict conditions, but it was saved. So that's the best proof ever yeah. that if slightly regulate and limit the human impact on the ecosystems yeah of nature blossom again yeah it's that's, a, that's a really great story it's a very positive story so that was the beginning uh of a uh, great determination and the foundation to do things right and have more impact so that was my example for traditional philanthropy and i insist on that because we understood as well already in 2016, so after 10 years of existence, that philanthropy will never be enough. Mm. It's, it's crucial, but it's never be enough to solve the complex problems of the environment. So 2016, His Highness gave us the blessing to launch our own projects. So we mm. call them the foundation. So projects are operated by third parties and we fund them, whereas initiatives are a concept born at the foundation and a concept for which we look for operating partners and financial partners. At the moment, we are running 13, so one, three, mm. initiatives uh, around the globe, mainly focusing on ocean matters, even though, even though this year we are developing, and this is a very important theme, uh, an initiative called Forests and Communities. So a global uh, initiative, totally focusing on the voice and the rights of indigenous communities and local communities. You were asking me if I had uh, three, uh, three, four, then I do. So local communities, I would say, mm. Luffy, and maybe two more, if you allow me to. Mm. Uh, my third one will be innovation and the private sector to save the ocean. So I've already mentioned you the platform that we have designed called e Ocean Innovators to bring together the CEOs and founders of, uh, of uh, companies that have positive impact on the marine ecosystems, yet making profits and uh, creating jobs. 
Mm-hmm. And in in parallel, we have developed the Reocean Fund, which is a fund that will um, ultimately invest in the companies that we have sourced to have uh, this kind of uh, triple win uh, on jobs, profits, and uh, environment. And the last initiative I would like to to stress is our significant efforts on making sure a new generation of talents can emerge. So we have just launched the regeneration program, mm-hmm. uh, it's targeting the under 35, but again, in a holistic way. So we're looking for under 35 that have already achieved something significant, having success, um, when it comes to sustainability or, uh, environmental conservation. Uh, we source globally these talents from science to artists, including sportsmen, businessmen, finance guys, and um, politicians. Um, we will offer them a campus, like a summer camp in Monaco, two weeks in July, with leadership skills and communication skills program led by INSEAD and the University of Edinburgh. And, um, and then we also um, have the great pleasure of having VIP masterclasses mm-hmm. with the great teachers, Paul Pullman, who will give a, a masterclass on courageous leadership. His Highness will be the godfather of the, um, of the first cohort. We also have the pleasure of partnering with Mwed Hennessy and having a one-day uh, on-the-ground site visit with the their 11 members of this first cohort. So they will go to discover a new vineyard that the Mwed Hennessy has developed in Davar in France, which is now totally sustainable. So we have a masterclass on biodiversity, but also in depth and with Philippe Chauss, the of Mwed Hennessy, about... Um, the luxury industry facing sustainability cha- sustainability challenges. So Alejandro Agag will also give a masterclass. Um, he's the founder of uh, Formula E, so the electric championship mm-hmm. uh, about mobility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm-hmm. after camp, all the members of the cohort will benefit from a twelve-month tailor-made program in public relation. Mm-hmm. They will come with us to COP to Davos and to other um, international events that the foundation organized or co-organized, but not to repeat the silos that we know. So we won't have this side event about the young generation. No, we will take members of our cohort and they will represent us. They will be part of the senior level panels that we are hosting or focusing. So the entire objective of regeneration is to go the extra mile to leverage the emerging talents to mm-hmm. make sure they will create a strong, solid community of talents uh, in the years to come uh, around Prince Albert, of course, but also to to make sure that we can definitely break these silos and achieve greater impacts faster, stronger. Mm-hmm. And breaking the silos is, I think, one of the uh, major points. Um and this cohort, you got already the cohort, or can people still apply? No, the um, the first cohort is now clearly defined. It will be announced and revealed on July the second, the first day of um, of the campus. Um, people can still apply to join the community. Mm-hmm. So we're working with a network of partners, of course, to source globally. But feel free to to contact me if you feel um, you have the profile and join. Would like to join the international community of people when it comes to selecting amongst the community the talents that will join campus there's a 
a stricter um, selection process that starts in January. So feel free to contact us. I think that's a great, great opportunity. Um, the other um, two projects I saw, which I really liked and would like to know more about it, is one is um, called the Mediterranean Freshwater Ecosystem. Right. Um, can you can you just um, talk a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. You know, and um, even in France and Monaco, the moon we have a, a very dry winter. So the problem that, or well, the challenge of um, uh, fresh water is growing in many parts of the world, but also also in the Med region. And we decided it was well. To be honest with you, it was extremely hard in the first years of the foundation to identify solid um, projects that would uh, tackle freshwater issues. But the yeah. difficulty was also linked to our own mission statement. We are a foundation focusing on environment. And usually when we received uh, great projects, usually they were very humanitarian. They were tackling, you know, urgent needs. Mm. So uh, bringing, uh, well, building pipes in schools, hospitals, and villages. And yes, there was the access to freshwater, but it was not clearly centered on environmental conservation. So we, we struggled a bit to find a lot of projects in that category. We had very great successes, though, in Latin America and in Amazonia in particular, working with photographer Sebastião Salgado. Um, and that's one of our flagship program because it was working with the local communities to train them to um, restore um, freshwater ecosystems like marshes and forests. So there was also the fight against deforestation links to um, the sustainable access to freshwater that worked pretty well. And with experience um, and, uh, and time, it was back in 2020, we, we have identified with our historic partners like MAVA and the AG Jensen Foundation um, a need in the Med and in particular in the Balkan region to address to address this um, challenge of access to sustainable fresh water mm. and to make sure we can also restore these freshwater ecosystems uh, at a doorstep yeah. and not going oh, where, the, um, where the situation is extremely worrying and it was not, uh, not enough addressed in the past. And usually these ecosystems are uh, along the coastline or by the river. So it really makes a good uh, complementary connection between biodiversity on land, biodiversity at sea, and the efforts that um, historically the foundation has made in favor of the med and the ocean. So it was a good way also to to come back to the land and once again uh, fulfilling one of our mission statement to keep human beings at the core of all the projects we we tackle. So that's the fresh ecosystem. Mm. Uh, because you talk in ecosystems here, did you work with or do you work um, in this particular uh, project together with your neighbors, Italy and France, or just with donors and your own money? Just with donors. Um, usually, and I would say the majority of the time, the foundation works with private uh, partners, uh, always operating the project with the entities that work very closely with the local 
official authorities, but the foundation very rarely has developed uh, projects or initiatives directly connected with states. Mm. The, the good example, or uh, on the contrary, I could give is the MED Fund. So the Mediterranean Fund for Marine Protected Areas, which um, born in Monaco and the, the foundation played uh, an instrumental role in making it happen, but it's a fund that has been launched by Monaco, France, and Tunisia. So it's totally backed by states in mm -hmm. that case. Mm -hmm. The other programs, no, they're more with the private entities and NGOs. Mm. And you, um, may I ask this question, is work with donors alone, um, uh, does it have a different impact than working with states? Um Clearly, we need to work at all levels. Mm. So it's not the same thing with the with states. You have to work so it's a larger scale to start with. It's more a question of regulation and laws and enforcing or defining new uh, framework. Mm -hmm. uh, NGOs is fundamental when you want to address the local level and regional level. So we need both, mm. and we don't choose. We don't need to choose. And we certainly want to continue working with all the stakeholders involved and including the private sector. We need the finance, we need the companies, we need the industries to change, adapt, and invest mm. in that field. Mm. Did you see um, from 2020 on um, with uh, COVID um, a stronger um, drive for alliance building? In a world like let's say you have a project is it it is easier for you to bring stakeholders um to the table like united nations and let's say um a big company or did it have no impact so that's a very interesting and bold question i would say um by intuition i would say that no covid has more of a negative impact on all topics linked to environment and i will explain myself there there was definitely definitely a 10 year setback when uh, coming to for instance plastic pollution mm -hmm. with COVID, we we went back big time and globally to single-use plastic everywhere yeah. yeah everything was wrapped in plastic and it was disposable and you couldn't reuse it so that was a massive massive uh, step back on that specific matter. And that being said, and I would add also to that fact that the very tragic war in Ukraine that uh, that had to force uh, European countries at least to, to reflect on energy questions. So that can be a good outcome. But the main, main, main achievements that have to be really noticed because they were not that so expected were at the political level with the high seas treaty and the Kunming Agreement um, for, you know, defining the um, biodiversity framework. So the 30 by 30, that was mm. pretty unexpected. And now we are in the process of discussing a, a plastic treaty as well. Um, the two first ones, the High Seas Treaty and the 30 by 30, in each case, we're talking about decades of negotiations. Yeah. Decades. And we finally seem to be there to reach this political agreement, which is not the end of the road. It's only the beginning because then you need to implement it. But at least there was a, a move 
which was not that obvious to reach. So no, I think COVID had very um, significant um, step back on various on the various aspects. Um, you you saw that the um, uh, public funding did go in other directions, which was very important as well. You know, health and security uh, and avoiding the you know environmental funding. People felt more concerned about. Um, other, all the very sound uh, topics, obviously, and the inflation now. But however, on the other aspects, there was no uh, quite interesting success to underline. Mm -hmm. Okay, to the project number two, um, which I found it called Pelago or Pelagos. I don't know. Pelago. Yeah. Yes. Can you talk about that? Pelagos is a fantastic example uh, of transboundary marine protected areas. So Pelagos is a marine sanctuary mm. between France, Monaco, and Italy. Mm. It's the largest um, area protected in the Med. Um, you would pr maybe remember the, the Aishi targets, which used to set um, a target of 10% of marine protected areas by mm. 20. Obviously, we didn't reach that. And in the Med, we are barely around 8% now of marine protected areas, but amongst with 1.67% is the Pelagos Sanctuary. Mm. So this is a large area. And again, transboundary. This is very important to underline because it's so rare at the international level. Um, and it's working fine. So everybody, even in Monaco, is extremely surprised that taking your boat, um, going out at sea, and making a 45 minute you know, journey at sea, you would meet, and from June to, to October, it's the case, um, a lot of sea mammals, dolphins, mm -hmm. whales, uh, there are also turtles, manta rays as well. So the diversity of species is highly important, significant. There, there are two main harbors of the Med, also in that uh, perimeter, Marseille and Genova in Italy. Mm -hmm. So there is all the questions about uh, shipping regulation and the speed of boats and the pollution. So it's a very good lab that can benefit a lot of other MPAs in the around the world. Hmm. And we decided that the foundation that, and it comes back to what you just said in the previous questions, but as it's transboundary, it's uh, a century that is run by a consensus between the three states um, that shared the, the waters of this Pelagos century. But the foundation decided to support, help, and accelerate um, the cooperation of the uh, civil society within the Pelagos century by launching specific calls of action. And thanks to the fantastic partnership we have established with UBS and UBS Foundation called the Optimus Foundation, we have been able to, to launch a partnership of 1 million euros um, specific program to identify projects in the Pelagos century that will also have an impact on climate. Mm. I will give you a very quick example there because it's going very popular now. All the studies about the importance of a whale, for instance, in the regulation of climate. Mm -hmm. And we have, um, we have a very important uh, community of whales in the Pelagos century. So you see, we can also, by conserving um, these species, 
have a tangible and measurable impact on uh, on the climate and the, the reduction of um, uh, CO2 emissions, for instance. Mm -hmm. But, um, Olivier, I have to ask you that there are many calls of actions in the world all the time. A lot of them die of old age. How do you made it happen? My answer is, is very clear. So every year now, we have a call for projects. So NGOs between France, Italy and Monaco can submit a project uh, in the region that mm. can be measurable and have an impact. And mm. then we ask, thanks to the governing bodies of the foundation and the help of our financial partners uh, when it comes to that specific initiative. In our governing bodies, we have well-established international scientists and experts that can help us decide which projects could have the most impact. So once again, I get your point, like calls are not enough. Calls mm. for us never really work. So that's why we we have a very strong focus on our on our region, which is on our doorstep, the Meds. The Med is the most polluted sea. We have a problem with overfishing, of pollutions. We need to develop more marine protected areas. And obviously, for geographical and historical reasons, Monaco and the Federation, we have quite good networks uh, in the region. So that's where we want to test, try innovation, try um, to lead by the example and have a greater impact to then um, work with sister NGOs, I would say, or entities to duplicate and replicate what works in the med for in other seas, for instance. Mm -hmm. So instead of having calls, we want to be rather smaller, <laughs> more specific to measure the success, but and also be totally transparent on the failure and the mistakes that uh, could have been made. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that it works that way. Um, if we look at the current situation here um, in Monaco, Monaco and, and the whole Riviera, there is um, a lot of talk about water and droughts and um, how to use the water resources properly. And um, I heard the other day in a radio that The, um, your government has implemented a water management plan and activated an alert system so that aimed at guaranteeing the rational use of water resources. What does it mean for the citizens? So I'm very happy to commend that decision, even though, and I should state that uh, very transparently, it's not linked to the foundation activities. This is clearly the state of Monaco and the government of Monaco decisions, but First and foremost, it's an important step forward to make sure we are aligned with the neighboring cities or the French cities that are around Monaco. Mm. Um, water is coming from the Alps, so we all share the same sources um, when it comes to, to, to water resources. So that was one good thing to make sure we all have the same uh, system of alerts and um, procedure uh, in when drought will ultimately come. So mm. that was the regulation framework that was important to mention. Secondly, what is going on at the moment with the alert? So it's just a very strict warning about the fact that the level of uh, the res of resources is very low, let's mm. face it. Mm. And we're not, or we are already not in summer. So it might be 
worsening in the coming weeks and months. So we have to be extremely careful with the use of water when it comes to washing your car, washing the pavement. Um, and prevention is central in that case. So to, to make sure you can collect water when it's there and develop containers um, would be central, not only in Monaco, but also in, uh, in many, many, a lot of cities that were not used to mm -hmm. having or to being exposed to such long period of, uh, of droughts. And yeah. the projections of experts are quite alarming for the decade to come. So we have to be ready. We have to, to go with, um, I think you can say that in English, sobriety. So mm. to make, use it very carefully. It's, uh, it's like, uh, it's the blue gold. Mm. Um, be very careful. And a lot of common sense should be used there. Do we really need to wash our car with, uh, every week with, uh, drinkable water? That's clearly questionable. And then. We are also promoting the debate around the gray water um, to make sure that this gray water is not wasted but can be easily reused for non-drinkable activities like, as we said, uh, cleaning, washing, cars, boats, uh, pavements, roads, mm. uh, and, and gardening. Mm. What, may, may I ask, what is gray water? Is that wastewater? Uh, yeah, the water from the, your shower, for instance. For instance. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Just w w one more additional question because I find it very interesting. You are such a small country with um, short of forty thousand um, residents, and yet 40, you are so 40, sorry. Forty thousand. <laughs> oh, okay. Forty. Forty. Um, and and you are the most densely populated sovereign state in the world. So. We don't have to mention um, the level of wealth, but we need to mention how in that small space, limited space of land, um, how do you manage water and energy and the land? So the land, that's the key question for Monaco because it's small. It's smaller than uh, than Central Park, <laughs> in the UK. So. Yes, let's face it, it's super dense urbanism. Um, we didn't have the choice, you know, for uh, to accommodate the development uh, in terms of demography, population, economic growth. We had to um, to have a lot of town planning in the city, in the you know, state city of Monaco. So, yes, it is an urban space. Um, Prince Rainier III, so the father of Prince Albert mm. II, um, had defined, you know, um, a framework in construction that 40% of the construction has to be green. So what happened was the, um, the, the, a lot of our roofs are actually, and we have also beautiful gardens in town, like the majority of our, our neighboring cities. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is in construction, Prince Albert has implemented the highest standards of uh, environmental, um, sorry, of the highest environmental standards in the construction are implemented in new construction everywhere to mm. make sure mm. we energy efficiency, yeah. which is essential for all the cities now. We can cut very easily, at least by 30%, our emissions if we have better isolation, windows, roof. So this is exactly what has been implemented for decades in Monaco with new construction. 
Mm. Uh, we are also adamant, and again, we, we can address that uh, question as well about the sea reclamation project or Mariterra, so an extension over the sea, which has been designed, thought for, uh, for almost 10 years before it was built to make sure that it would limit as much as possible the impact on the marine ecosystems and all the materials that have been sourced and the design of um, uh, of the of the extension uh, will in will be able to enhance the biodiversity when it's over. I give you a quick example of the company that has been testing very positively its uh, technology. It's called Econcrete. Mm. It's an Israeli company that. Uh, we use in Monaco, so they build concrete, but environmental-friendly concrete yeah. that pattern uh, help biodiversity grow on the wall that you can build undersea. But also, the concrete uh, has a um, uh, neutral pH level, yeah. which uh, limit the impact on the marine ecosystem when it's uh, immersed underwater. To have like uh, walls underwater to to protect your coast mm. for instance mm. and that water um well first first of all and before the alert it has been the, the case for many years in monaco the the water that is used to to water the gardens and uh, clean up the streets uh is gray water and it's also recycled well yeah recycled water so we're not our resource plus we are blessed to have the arts behind us and yeah so brings um, lead to, um, to, to Monaco. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to mention that because I read probably kind of 10 years ago about the, the extension of the land into the sea. And I wrote a novel uh, where I put it all in and ended up with you getting praised and awarded for the whole thing because it's eco-friendly. But I all yeah. made it up. So I'm glad that you're uh, saying <laughs> it's eco-friendly. Thank you. Oh, it is. It will be finished by next year, and I will invite you to, to come and visit and see by yourselves. <laughs> hmm, yes, happily. Thank you. But, Olivier, before you go back now to your day two of the Green Festival, we have to talk about the Arctic briefly, because the Arctic plays a special role in the Foundation's work. And from what I understood, it was the tipping point for Prince Albert. Actually, so it was not the the main or unique reason, but uh, yes, Prince Albert visited uh, the two poles. He went to the North Pole. He went to the South Poles on ex on expeditions, mm. and to now he's the only heads of state to have experienced the reality of uh, the polar regions. The only head of state still now, yeah. So it is because. The polar regions are fantastic laboratories of what is happening at the global level, but every way and every time faster. So mm. the uh, the ice melt goes faster, the loss of biodiversity goes faster, uh, sea level rise goes faster. So you can very easily study what will happen in the rest of the world in these regions. Mm. Very pristine regions as well. So. Um, but far and away, and we always thought, I think, in the public opinion, that they would remain pristine forever because we don't see them, because we don't know them, because in our collective imagination, uh, it will never change. And it's full of mm. icebergs, 
um, ways, orcas, etc. It's clearly not the case, uh, I'm afraid. And that's why in 2022, we launched our polar initiative. Yeah. And we had an intuition that even the scientists from the Arctic and the Antarctic regions didn't have the chance to often discuss, exchange, converse about the challenges and um, opportunities that they had. And we were right. So we offered them, it was the first time ever that the scientists from the two polar regions would gather all together mm. on a symposium in Monaco. So that was the launch uh, of the initiative. I would say that the motivation was clearly and easily put in a motto. What is happening in the poles or the polar regions doesn't stay in the pole. Yeah. And it's true that what is going on in, Arctic, in the Arctic or the Antarctic regions is affecting on a daily basis our forests, our deserts, our coastlines, you know, in to put it simple, our daily life depends on these two important regions. Yeah. So what did we do? First, listen to the science and only science. So it was a two-day symposium, reserved, closed doors to scientists to make a, a, a sum of, uh, uh, of knowledge and uh, a state of the art. Second, we want to support new talents. So we support grants with SCAR and IASC, which are the two leading organizations with the polar regions, to support PhD studies from um, uh, students from the least developed countries to make sure they will also have the uh, possibility to work on these topics. Third, we've launched campaigns such as we supported a campaign against heavy fuel in the Arctic, which is a success. By 2024, uh, heavy fuel will be banned from the Arctic. Um, and then we continue as a traditional philanthropy to support projects on the ground and mainly and namely with local communities in the Arctic region. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really fantastic. That I didn't know. That's that's really yeah. good, really good. Um, which also then connects it better because I saw um, Prince Albert in Davos introducing yes. the president of the Zami, the indigenous people of the <laughs> Arctic region. And I wondered, uh, what is the connection with the foundation or with him and indigenous groups? Well, the connection is central. As I said, when Prince Albert launched the foundation, he made he made it clear that all the projects that we would support, launch, or create would always have to be centered around human beings. And obviously, when he meant that, he meant the local communities, because they are the one uh, and especially in that region, in these regions uh, that are suffering the most from the impact of climate change, but they are also the one that have this traditional ancestral knowledge that should be wisely listened to, um, because they know how to be more resilient. And we're talking about their lands as well. So mm. that's why we we felt the urgency to help them leverage their voice and their rights. Mm. Mm. Well, that was um, final question. Yeah, final question. Okay, okay, final question. What's next for the foundation, and what do you need most at the moment? We need to convince more people to go faster and to accelerate the change. Hence, the Green Ship Festival to make sure that we can dream of the world we want to to have in the next decades and give our children. So, first of all, the dream. So we need holistic discussion with scientists, artists, businessmen. Then we need to channel 
the right investments. So to convince the companies, industries, and the states to invest wisely into the renewables, into uh, ways, technologies, and innovations to change the way we produce, we consume, and we travel. This is compulsory. And then we have to accompany new talents because they're the, uh, the, the upcoming leaders that always have to keep in mind in every decision they will make, um, sustainability. It has to be key. We have to reconcile ecology and economy. Uh, we can't talk about ecology if it's not linked to the real world and the economics. So, um, and to really have these decision makers understand that we can't talk about the GDP and the, um, and the production if you don't include the environment, the natural resources. If there's no water, if there's no uh, forest, if there's no natural resources, there will be no economy, bottom line. So we have to also make sure that at every level in the real world or the economic world, you have these notions of sustainability that is deeply rooted. That's why we, um, we focus a lot on the emergence of new talents. Wonderful. On this happy note, I mean, I could talk to you for another hour at least, <laughs> and I have a million ideas. <laughs> anyway, so I, I'm really grateful that you were talking to me and to us, and we have listeners in 77 countries, and hopefully they all now say, wow, Monaco is um, the place to be, and um, they do something um, for the planet. Great. Olivier Ben, thank you very much, and uh, good luck now today with your Green Shift Festival. Thank you so much, Sibyl, and see you soon in Monaco. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a special English edition of Der Große Neustadt, a German podcast series by Sibylla Barton, in which she talks to pioneering leaders who are committed to making our world smarter, greener, and fairer. For more information, please visit www.sibyllabarton.com and the official site of the World Economic Forum.